the uh, humbling task of closing out our series on uh, the undercover boss. This is the last installment of the series. The, we had three sermons on it. This is the last of the three sermons. <clears throat> and um, I'm very privileged to, to be a part of the, the teaching staff here to, to help bring a closure to this message, to this series. So um, there was a tourist that was visiting uh, Europe and he came across a church that was under construction. And there was a sculptor on the property of this construction site and he was carving a statue of God. And the tourist, curiously enough, noticed that next to the statue that was being carved, there was a statue identically like the one that he was carving, but laying on the ground on his side. And he looked at it, and he looked at the one that the sculptor was sculpting, and he had a question for the sculptor. So he went over to the sculptor, and he asked the sculptor, said, do you really need two statues of God in this church? And the sculptor, without a skipping a beat, he's working away, working away, and he says, no, we just need one. He says, so why do you have two, the tourist asked. He said, well, that, that one got damaged in the final stages of my work. And so he looks it over, the tourist does, and he's looking for the damage. He couldn't quite see it. He didn't understand where it was. So the sculptor said, there's a scratch on the nose. And so he looks and he sees this small scratch on the nose of the sculpture. And so he asked this question. He said to the sculptor, where is this sculpture going to be placed on the church grounds? He goes, well, there's this 20-foot tall pillar. It's going to sit on top of this 20-foot tall pillar. And this tourist then says, scratching his head, he goes, if it's going to be that high, who's going to even notice that there's a scratch on the nose of the statue. And the sculptor then says, puts down his tools and looks at the tourist and says, I'll notice. I'll know that it's there. You see, excellence is not driven by what other people think. It's driven by something inside of you, something that drives you for your self-satisfaction and your efficiency. It's not done for the world to see. It's done for your own benefit. In fact, I love this, this statement. I don't know who said it. It says, don't climb a mountain with the intention that the world will see you. Climb the mountain with the intention to see the world. That's a powerful statement about excellence. In fact, my the title of my message today is Work-Life Excellence. Work-Life Excellence. I use the phrase work-life excellence as opposed to work-life balance because work-life balance has the, it has the overtone that somehow I have to choose between work and life. That there's a tension between them. And let me tell you something. That's so far from the truth. So far from the truth. God has never told us to be in tension with work and life. In fact, he's asked us to be in rhythm with both. To be in harmony with both. See, but in order to understand what 
work-life excellence looks like, we need to understand the proper view of work. And the proper view of work is understanding God's original intent. See, in Genesis, we find God doing what in the first six days? Working. God was working. And on the seventh day, he rested. And so he creates man, and he places Adam in the garden to do what? To work the garden. In fact, let's go to Genesis 2.15. It says this about Adam. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Did you hear what that said? The Lord God took Adam, placed him in the garden for the purpose of working it and keeping it. This reminds us that work was always in the mind of God. It was not an afterthought. It was not a result of sin. It wasn't a result of Adam's disobedience. Don't get that wrong. Oftentimes we make the assumption that work came about after Adam sinned. That's wrong. The scriptures is quite clear that Adam was ordained to do work in the garden before he ever sinned. And so what did take place after Adam's sin was that the work became harder. It was never meant to steal life away from Adam or from us, work was. Work was supposed to be a blessing. It was supposed to be a byproduct of our likeness to God. And when we produce things that bring life, it was supposed to show that God's glory was inside of us. So work itself was a blessing. In fact, I love the way Tim Keller puts it. God left creation with a deep, untapped potential for cultivation that people were to unlock through their labor. So what he's saying here is that God created the raw material, right, of the earth, and he placed man in it to produce good things. I believe that God has untapped potential around you that your job is to unlock. That your job and your work is supposed to unlock it to produce those things. So how can you function at the highest level as it relates to work and the various aspects of your life? See, because it's your, your, your work life and the life outside of work. Now remember, they're not intention. But the only way to understand that is to go to Psalm 128. Let's go there together. We find a snapshot of what work-life excellence looks like there. I think it provides a poignant insight of how to achieve it. Let's read this together as it's up posted on the screens in front of you. Blessed. Let's say it all together. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessing and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. Let me also say this blessing is for the woman as well. 
is not just for the man. You are blessed. We are blessed. We are all in this promise here. Our children are supposed to be blessed. Our marriages are supposed to be blessed. You are supposed to be blessed. Why? When you fear the Lord. See, the core of how we interact with any aspect of our lives is how we view God. When we view God in the proper manner, it opens up the possibility for every aspect of your life to express excellence. The fear of the Lord is what the psalmist starts with. The very foundation of everything that happens in a, in a, in a person's life has to start with the fear of the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord, let me tell you what the fear isn't by this simple illustration. Have you ever been driving on a highway going 10, 15 miles above the speed limit? That's not me this morning. I'm just saying. You're driving a little bit over the speed limit and you didn't notice that you just passed a state trooper. Not me again. I'm not talking about me. You pass the state trooper and the trooper suddenly pulls out. And he starts seemingly following you. Isn't there a certain fear that suddenly grips you at that point? Right? And then the fear gets greater when the lights go on. Again, I'm not talking about me. Right? But then the relief of the fear is when the cop suddenly switches lane and just zips right past you. You go, praise Jesus. Thank you, God. All of a sudden, you learn to thank God at that moment. Right? The fear that you had for the police officer or the state trooper, that's not the kind of fear that I'm talking about. The fear that I'm talking about is the fear of reverence. See, the fear of the police officer is a fear of being caught for something wrong that you were doing. A fear of authority. Now, God has all authority. But if you treat God like the police officer, you're, you're going to run into trouble. Because then every turn that you make, every mistake that you make, you're going to think that somehow God is going to put his lights on and chase you down. That's not the way God handles us. The fear of the Lord is one where we align ourselves with God, with his purpose and his plan. So barring any decision that you've made to follow Jesus, you must guard your heart. And that's the point that I want to make. Our first point today from uh, Psalm 128 is that you must guard your heart. You must guard your heart. All of us have a proclivity to be drawn to something instead of God. All of us have a proclivity to put something in front of God if we're not careful. For some of us, it might be our spouse. For others, it might be our children. For others, it might be our job. For others, it might be a hobby or, or something that you like to do. Suddenly, that thing becomes more important than God. Now you might think that this is all good information that I'm sharing, but you're wondering, how, how does this all connect to 
work-life excellence. Many times we begin to interact with work like a toil that in order to attain more stuff. We toil at it to attain more things. In essence, it becomes an, a means to an end. To get the bigger house, to get the bigger car, to get the more extravagant vacation, the, the cruise, the whatever it is that's more extravagant. So you could take a snapshot and put it on Instagram and let everybody know how flourishing you are. But then behind the scenes, your whole family and your whole life is falling apart. That's not what God wants for us. There's nothing inherently wrong with going on vacation or having a, a car that's, that's big enough to support your family. I'm not saying that. However, the problem, it becomes a problem when it becomes your focus. When everything that you're doing and everything that you're striving for is for a thing. Not a person. Not God. You must guard your hearts from idols. You must guard your heart from the things that pull you away from putting God first. An idol is just something that draws your attention away from God. That's what an idol is. An idol is not just a statue like in the old days that you bow down and worship. Some people bow down and worship their job. Some people bow down and worship their wife or their spouse or their kids. Some people bow down and worship entrepreneurship. They, they just love startup, starting businesses or they do other things that, that take the attention and it becomes an idol to them. And so what happens when the job that you idolize suddenly gives you a demotion, how do you respond at that point? This is, this is your God demoting you now. So now your whole world gets crushed. What happens when your wife is unhappy? Or your spouse is unhappy, your husband's unhappy, and they start treating you in a way that you don't expect. Now this thing that you used to idolize is turning on you. What happens when the kids that you idolize, when they go to college and they leave your house and they're no longer present and they don't, they don't call as often as they used to, they don't depend on you as much as they used to. What happens to the God that you have placed in the form of your children? What happens? What happens is that you go into the spiraling turmoil because you've missed the whole point of why you should guard your heart. Let me give you three tips of how to guard your heart. The first tip, and this is going to sting. This is going to be like alcohol on an open wound. Live below your means. You're not saying it, but I'm hearing, ouch. You're not saying it, but I'm hearing it. Live below your means. Establish a reasonable standard of living. Reasonable, meet your needs, but don't get all crazy extravagant. You don't need to eat out 15 times a week. You don't need to buy that, that, that extra car or whatever it is that, that you feel you need. Do you really need 70 pairs of shoes? Really? 
Think about it. There's people in this world that have nothing. And they're so much happier than we are. They are content with understanding that life is more precious, not because of the things that we have, but because of life itself. So live below your means is tip number one. Tip number two is be grateful. Take time to thank God for everything that you have. You know, last month, in the beginning of September, my wife started this, uh, I don't know what to call it, just task, I guess is, is uh, something for us to do every single day. She put out a notebook on the kitchen table with a pen, and she said, we're going to write a sentence, just one sentence, of what you're thankful for today. You're going to date it, and you're going to put your initial next to it. And the reason why she did that was God inspired her for, for us to be thankful every single day. And it doesn't matter what it is. If you get up in the morning and you go, God, thank you for the breath of life. Then you write it down. God, thank you for the breath of life and the food that I'm eating. Thank you for the clothes that I have. Thank you for the car that I have. Thank you for the kids that I have. Even though they're driving me crazy, I thank you for them. God, I thank you for the things that you've given me. Thank you for my husband. Thank you for my wife. Thank you for my job. Even though they're treating me unfairly. Thank you for the ability to work. Thank God. Be thankful. Be grateful for the things that you have. And when you do that, when you live below your means and you're being grateful and thankful, then give. Give. Don't be so self-absorbed. When you live below your means and you're thankful, then it's easy to serve other people. And giving isn't just with money. Giving is with your time, with your energy. See, because if you're not so self-absorbed with what you're so interested in, then when you live below your means and your time and your energy, then you have energy to serve others. And the way this guards your heart is because when you do these things, when you follow these tips, it allows you to protect yourself against self-centeredness. See, because if your whole world revolves around you, you're going to find yourself in a whole mess of trouble. So the first thing that you have to do to, for work-life excellence is to guard your heart. The second thing that you have to do is to nurture key relationships. Nurture key relationships. We find that in verse 3 of Psalm 128. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine, it says, within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Here we see that this marriage relationship is thriving. That the relationship with children are thriving. They're like shoots around the table. That means that there's relationship. The table represents relationship. Where you sit. Where you relate with one another. In that relationship it says that when you fear God. 
and you put him first, that those relationships will thrive. When our foundation is right, like I said in the last point, of guarding your heart, the psalmist goes on to describe the fruitfulness of our key relationships around us. See, this, this verse highlights certain aspects of the order that we have to have in our life. And let me outline my order, how I order my life. As an example, it's God, my wife, my kids, church, work. Work is on the bottom of my priority list. Now, if you're single, that might look a little different. It might be God, key relationships. I don't know who those key relationships are to you single folk. But key relationships, church, work. But you notice a similarity in both scenarios. What's at the top? God. So it doesn't matter whether you're single or you're married or you're in between or you're engaged. God needs to be first. As soon as you get funky with that order, as soon as you start to mess with that order, you run into trouble. You run into trouble. Why? Because if you put your kids in the place of God, when your, your kids start getting buck wild right around age 13... For me, it started at every age, right? But right, when, right around the teen years when you feel that they have lost their minds. Our teens have lost their minds. But let me tell you something. You were a teenager once too. And that means you lost your mind right around that time. And you didn't get it back probably till you were about 24, 25. And that, might, that age might even be a little later now. Right? So, when you put your kids up there in the place of God, when they start losing their minds, you think that God has lost his mind. Why? Because they were the thing that you were worshiping. And when they turn on you, and they will, I guarantee you they will, because when the kids start becoming their own person and flexing their own identity, oh, it, it, there's sparks flying. I guarantee you there's sparks flying. And when those sparks start to fly, you start to question, where's God in all of this? You didn't put him in the right place. You didn't put God in the first place. But it also applies if you put your spouse in that place or you put your work in that place. So everything is hinged on the order that you place. Where's God in your order of priority? Is he first? Stand clear from the trap of giving yourself over to work in a way that keeps you from nurturing key relationships. You know, work can't be all the time. You have to set boundaries. You have to set boundaries. Boundaries are basically a limit. It's a line that you won't cross. It's something that stops you from going further. In fact, let me give you some boundaries, some practical boundaries that you can use 
right now. Cutoff time. Cutoff time of what? Communication with work. Work can't be 24 hours a day. You can't be looking at your emails. Look, you and I are just not that important. Even as a business owner, you're not that important. If your business was to fold, you know what? Life will continue without you. The products that you're providing will continue to be provided whether you're doing it or not. So work needs to have a cutoff time. For what purpose? To create boundaries. You need to create boundaries. The second boundary that you can create is family traditions. So you create family traditions. And I don't know what your family is like. And if you're single, your, your family tradition might be uh, different because you're spending time with maybe family members and friends. But whatever those traditions are, make sure that you protect them. You set a boundary around them. For, for families with children, it might be a game night. It might be a movie night. It might be dinner in, in, at the table and having a special dinner. That's each member of the family chooses what they want to eat that night. Whatever the tradition is, you need to protect it. Because if you don't protect it, nobody will. Nobody's going to protect that. And the last boundary that you could add is to clear your schedule. There has to be seasons where you clear the schedule and pause to reconnect with loved ones. A perfect example of this was last week. It was my wife's birthday on Wednesday. This past week on Wednesday. I won't tell you how old she was turning. It was her birthday, and so I took off of work. I didn't come into work. My daughter is in school. My son is in school. We took the day, and we had breakfast together. We had lunch together. We went to a museum together, the things that we love to do. And we, I went to see a great graffiti show in the Morris Museum, just a little plug for my, for my friend who curated the show. And so we went to see the show, and we loved it. We loved the time that we were together. But we needed to block out and clear our schedule to make that happen. You need to do what you need, have to do to clear the schedule for the people that you find important to nurture those key relationships. So you guard your heart, you nurture key relationships, and lastly, you work with excellence. Psalm 128 verses 2 and 4 reads this, reads as such. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Say, you will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessing and, uh, blessing and prosperity will be yours. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man or woman who fears the Lord. When we place everything in its proper order, we will discover that the fruit of our labor has been blessed. Say, has been blessed. When we put God first. There's a gift in the fact that we see that the fruit or the benefit of our work comes from our relationship with God. Interestingly enough, when we say work-life excellence, we immediately think that somehow when we say work-life excellence, that we have to work more. 
that we have to work harder, that there's more production being made, that there's more produce, uh, pr uh, product being produced by your life. Not necessarily. See, God worked for six days, and then what happened on the seventh day? He rested. What we forget is that rest is just as important as the work. Even though God's called us to work, he's also called us to rest. Inc. Magazine published a list of benefits that take place from resting. The first of these is that when you unplug and you find time to rest, it reduces stress. It also boosts immune system. So for some of you folks that are getting sick all the time, that the cold just never seems to go away, it's like a lingering cold for months on end, the likelihood is it's stress-related. And you take the antibiotics and it doesn't, kick the, it doesn't kick it out. You take another round of antibiotics and you find that it's still kicking, not, not taking hold. You're still finding yourself sick. Look at the stress level. Unplug. Relieve the stress. It boosts your immune system. It also heightens your focus. And restores mental energy. And it also boosts creativity. That's my favorite. That when you unplug, you think that something is not happening, but something is happening. It, it's allowing yourself to reboot. See, it's just like your computer or your smart device when you ever had it like freeze up on you. The spinning ball of death on your laptop or, or your phone just... The email is taking like forever to load or, or whatever it is. You know what, what Apple recommends or your uh, Samsung recommends? Shut it down. Turn it off. Give it a rest. And sometimes it says to clear the cache. You ever heard that statement? That you have to clear the cache. That means that so much junk has accumulated in this device that you have to clear the junk. So there's a time where you have to come to where you have to clear the junk. Unplug. In fact, one study by the Harvard Medical, Harvard Medical School found that lower neural activity, lower brain activity, was linked to longer life. Doesn't mean that you have to be brain dead. It means that you're lowering your thoughts. How do you slow down the thinking? You ever go to bed and you feel like you can't shut your mind off? That's the stress level. That's life getting you at its best. So th what the study showed is that people that were able to lower their neural activity lived longer. And the ironic thing about that study is that the when they studied the brains of these older individuals, they all had one thing in common. There was a certain protein that they found in the frontal cortex of their brain. And you know what, the, what that protein was called? 
the rest gene. R-E-S-T, rest gene. So they all had a heightened rest gene in their brain. Why? Because they were able to lower their neural activity. So let me give you some tips on how to lower your neural activity so you can live longer and be more productive. How do you recharge? Ways to recharge. Stop. In the name of love. <laughs> stop. It sounds simple, but you have to stop. Stop running the race. Stop trying to achieve. Stop. Why do you stop? Because you have to recharge. Why do you stop? Because you want more of God and less of stuff. Why do you stop? You stop to regroup. You stop to think about the things that you have. You stop to think, to regather your thoughts. You stop. You stop working for paid jobs and unpaid jobs. You stop everything. You halt. And what that does, it allows you to understand that you're not in control. The second thing is you rest. You stop, you rest. Engage in activities that cause rest to take place. Hobbies like reading and writing and doing puzzles or whatever it is that you rest, that gives you rest. Engage in those activities. And then lastly, delight. Take time to delight in God's creation. Look at the things around you that God has created and delight in them. That might be a good meal with a friend. That might be walking in a park or in a nature preserve and just sitting on a bench and closing your eyes and hearing the birds. Whatever it is, delight in God's creation. When we trust God's provision and we... And this gives us the freedom to be able to rest and recharge. And that recharging actually empowers us to work life excellence. I close with this. According to Greek legend, an ancient Athenian man came across Aesop, the famous storyteller. Most of us know Aesop's fables, right? We've heard them when we were children. This Athenian came across Aesop, and Aesop was playing with a, a, a group of kids. And the group of kids were having a grand time with Aesop as he was on the floor with them and rolling with them and enjoying time with them. And this man saw, saw this famous storyteller well-informed well and knowledgeable. And he said, why are you spending so much time with this frivolous activity? And he jeered and laughed at him. And Aesop got up off the floor and picked up a bow, like a bow and arrow. Not to shoot him. But he took the bow and he took the string and he took it off the bow. And he put the bow back on the ground. And then he asked the man, Tell me the answer to this riddle if you can. What's the meaning of the bow? And the man looked at it 
and he was trying to figure it out. And he couldn't quite figure it out. So he asked Aesop, Aesop, what does that mean? And this is what Aesop said. If you keep the bow always bent under stress, it'll eventually break. But if you let go of the slack, it will be more fit for use when you need it. People are just like that. Unless you learn to unplug, unless you learn how to find rest in God, eventually you're going to break.